You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Hell and damnation, accidental mentioning of a white supremacist, metaphorical sexual assault, and evil trees. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Permit me to say a few words about the story. It is a romance. I am well aware that, with many readers, this epithet will be enough to ensure condemnation. But there ought to be a place for any story which, though founded in the marvelous, is true to human nature and to itself. Truth to humanity and harmony within itself are almost the sole unvarying essentials of a work of art. Even the rhyme of the ancient mariner, than which what more marvelous, is true in these respects. And Shakespeare himself will allow any amount of the marvelous, provided this truth is observed. I hope my story is thus true, and therefore, while it claims some place, undeserving of being classed with what are commonly called sensational novels, I am well aware that such tales are not of much account at present, and greatly I would regret that they should ever become the fashion, of which, however, there is no danger. But seeing so much out of our life must be spent in dreaming, may there not still be a nook, shadowy, but not miasmatic, in some lowly region of literature where, in the pauses of labor, a man may sit down and dream such a daydream as I now offer to your acceptance, and that of those who will judge the work, in part at least, by its purely literary claims? If I combined my pen to such results, you, at least, would have a right to blame me. But you, for one, will, I'm sure, justify an author in dreaming sometimes. In offering you a story, however, founded on Second Sight, the belief in which was common to our ancestors, I owe you, at the same time, an apology. For the tone and color of the story are so different from those naturally belonging to a Celtic tale, that you might well be inclined to refuse my request, simply on the ground that your pure Highland blood revolted from the degenerate embodiment given to the ancient belief. I can only say that my early education was not Celtic enough to enable me to do better in this respect. I beg that you will accept the offering with forgiveness, if you cannot, with approbation. Yours affectionately, George MacDonald. Welcome to What Mad Universe! Uh, as always, um, we've got uh, an interesting little wrinkle in the history of sci-fi fantasy for you today. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. And you are? <laughs> Adam Prosser. Um, uh, oh, good. And... I, I need to write that down. I keep forgetting. <laughs> Yes, apparently so do I. It's been a <laughs> quite a week for me. Um, but uh, today we are looking at uh, Fantasties, that's P.H. Fantasties by George MacDonald, a very influential and seminal fantasy novel from 1858. And we'll be right back after this. Eliminate clutter and embrace the freedom of HyperX wireless gaming gear for PC and console. Power through all the great monthly PlayStation Plus games with the Cloud Stinger Core Wireless for PlayStation. Enjoy lightweight comfort with reliable wireless freedom, so you won't miss plot points when you head to the fridge. High-quality HyperX wireless products can be found at most fine retailers, as well as online at Target, Micro Center, Best Buy, Amazon, Walmart, or shop directly at HyperX.com and HP.com. SequelCast 2 and Friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time. Hosted by Matt Bradley Shurgi, Thrasher, and Alex Miller, been going since 2009, and we're part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Okay, so um, yeah, the uh, the book we chose was one uh, I don't think either of us had read before uh, for this week. Um, it's Fantastes by George MacDonald. Um, George MacDonald is uh, a pretty uh, significant 
figure in fantasy writing. Um, he was uh, actually has an interesting story in that he was a theologian and somewhat briefly, I think he was a priest uh, or a um, he was in the in the clergy or studying for the clergy. Apparently, he was um, booted out for uh, universalism, uh, which is the idea that um, everyone will get into heaven eventually. Uh, and that heathens can get into heaven and animals can get into heaven. Uh, um, apparently he, this is... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Uh, apparently he wasn't uh, quite a universe. Like, he was accused of that. He wasn't um, quite a universalist, uh, but he did believe that everybody would eventually be forgiven and that, say, uh, punishment was, like, punishment in hell was, like, temporary, that sort of thing. Right. Well, I, I think that is what universalism is, I mean, because it means, uh, like, universal salvation, I think right? straight u universalism is just, like, everybody goes to heaven. Oh, I see. Okay, I got you. Um, it's, yeah, like, that's... a very, it's similar, but they're, you know, Right, right. I'm not a yeah, theologian, sorry. I no, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Anyway, the, apparently that was enough that he couldn't continue studying for the clergy. Um, and um, so he started to write fairy tales instead and became a uh, this poet. This would be Catholic churchy, right? He was raised Catholic? Uh, oh, God, you know what? I In all the stuff I read about him, I'm not even sure if it was Catholicism. Yeah, I, I don't know <laughs> if it was Catholicism or if it was uh, Anglican or, <laughs> or something else. He was Scottish, that's all I know. Yeah, because um, there's, there's stuff about um, him being um, uh, introduced to the idea of Calvinism as a child and like if he was Catholic, like that would just be straight up rejected. So uh, right. apparently, he's, he really struggled with just. He was told the concept of um, uh, uh, predestination and the, the idea of the elect, and it just made him cry out of its uh, sheer right. unfairness. Like yeah. as a child, um, yeah. Even though he was told he was definitely one of the elect, he was still very upset by the idea, which is understandable. Um, yeah. Well Good for him. That's the right. Uh, th I think that's the correct response to hearing about that kind of idea, especially the Calvinist idea. Which, if people don't know, Calvinism is the idea that you know the God already knows everyone who's going to be saved and who's going to hell, and like there's theoretically nothing you can do to change. Although we're talking about like, of course, people can redeem themselves, but it's going to happen already. God already knows it's going to happen, so it's like people are born and they're just damned to hell already as soon as they're born, kind of thing. Yeah, and um, there's only a select few elect that will actually get into heaven. Right. Um, and out of all of humanity. And that is, I think, as I mentioned in the Solomon Cain episode, that's one of the, the what we call Puritanism is not one specific religion, but it Calvinism is a big was a big influence on it in the the 16th century or 17th century. Um, so that was very they they were known for being very dour. I don't. I, there are apparently still Calvinists around, but. Um, it's known for being, you know, it's known for being an archaic uh, religious style, and it was very sort of dour and serious. I, and I believe the uh, the Westboro Baptist Church are uh, Calvinists. Oh, really? Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but anyway, there's uh, there's a there's a, there's a lot there. But yeah, he he's his he's very he's a very humanist writer uh, and and thinker um, in all regards, and he was one of the early. Uh, of many fantasy writers um, who kind of went, hey, fantasy's good and important, gosh darn it. Um, and which, you know, you could always do by uh, tying it to uh, the classic, uh, the classics in general, um, which tend to be fantastical. Um, but uh, so, you know, there was always this striving in the 19th century as sort of modern fantasy was kind of starting to emerge to tie it in with classical fantasy and, and, stuff like Shakespeare and, uh, and, and Pilgrim's Progress, maybe Chaucer. Chaucer's not really a fantasist, but you know, it's, uh, um, that I mean, King Arthur in general, which this book does. Yes. King Arthur being one of the big, uh, the big, uh, elements and the fairy queen by Richard Spen uh, uh, by what's the Edmund Spencer. Name? Edmund, Edmund Spencer. Spencer. God, not, not Richard, Richard Spencer. Spencer. No, <laughs> um, I, I yes. should hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, uh, but um, yeah, it's uh, which you have read, so uh, yes. I did want to talk about that at one point. Actually, well, well let's get into it. Uh, what what can you tell us about the Fairy Queen? It's very long. Mm -hmm. That's that's the end of my <laughs> no, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's all written in verse, um, a style of sonnet called Spenserian sonnet. Uh, 
you know, named after Edmund Spencer, that has like a slightly different rhythm than your classic Shakespearean um, sonnet. Though uh, he predates Shakespeare, I believe. Um, yeah, uh, Shakespeare took an element of King Lear from um, the brief biography of, of King Lear in The Fairy Queen. Um, there's, uh, I believe the method of Cordelia's death is, uh, is reused in Shakespeare, and that's something that Spencer came up with. What, what is that method of death? Uh, hanging, I believe. Oh, well, okay. I mean, um, you know, it's, but, you know, uh, like there were different versions earlier, so Shakespeare used, um, uh, oh, I that see. element I from Spencer. Because it's, I see. uh, okay. King Lear's, a, like, a, a lead, like an English legend, so right, uh, there's right. various versions across time, and uh, Shakespeare used that particular element from uh, Spencer. I gotcha. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah, it's it's a um, um, it's a fascinating work. It's unfinished, despite its length. It's like a fraction of what it was supposed to be. Um, and uh, in the uh, in the uh, Spencer's foreword, he talks about how uh, you know the the point where like the fairy queen doesn't actually appear in the book. She mm. was meant to. But she just, you know, isn't there uh, with what what we have. Um, there's supposed to be a scene later that shows uh, the knights all getting their quests um, in the court of the fairy queen, and that actually takes place earlier. But it it was going to be later for poetical reasons. But yeah, he he died, so I see it didn't happen. The whole thing. So also, they edited it in. Is that what you're saying? No, or no, it's they... not edited in. It's it's just not there. Oh, I see. It, okay. it just stops. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's uh, the the whole thing is um, supposed to be. It's uh, structured after the uh, the twelve virtues. Um, so each knight represents one of the virtues, and there's a, a lengthy section covering each one of them. Uh, though the stories often cross over, and some of them um, are more focused on another character than the one it's supposed supposedly named after. Um, so these are the cardinal virtues, so like uh, chastity and uh, temperance and so on. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and it all follows uh, these uh, knights on their various quests. And, you know, it's in some ways it's typical adventure stuff, but it's all very, very transparent metaphors for um, uh, uh, moralistic, uh, you know, uh, like, um, yeah, moralistic tales. Um, to, to teach proper values and things. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, so, like, there's a, a castle, uh, the Castle of Vanity that's built on a beach, you know, built on sand. Right. Um, that sort of thing. Like, very, very thin metaphors, uh, but... Very <laughs> allegorical, yeah. Yeah, right. very... The allegory... Uh, by thin, I, I don't mean... Um, I just mean very, very obvious, yes. Very I straightforward. I think the word... I think the word is didactic. Is yes, kind of yes, it is. yeah. It, it's it's very much a uh, you know, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards sort of thing. Right. Um, <laughs> well, it is subtext. It's just very obvious. Subtext. Yes, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, and it's got lots of um, uh, interesting details. It it is set in um, roughly an Arthurian legendarium. King Arthur's a recurring character in it, though he's. He's just a prince at the time. This is, I guess, a prequel. Um, yeah, uh, so he shows up repeatedly, and he's searching for the fairy queen. Um, and again, that's that's not resolved, because <laughs> there's only like, I don't know, what was it, seven, seven of the knights are, are followed instead of 12? So yeah, it's, um, it, it would be, I mean... It's already long enough as it is, so mm -hmm. I, I don't well, know if I like, say I will. That's like uh, the Canterbury Tales said the same thing, right? Like they're they're it's it's long and significant, but he actually wanted to do way more with it than he actually yeah. did. So it seems to be yeah. a thing with Moe, a writer just having uh, exorbitant plans that he never followed through. I imagine. That. Yeah, it also uh, ties in heavily with Greek mythology. Like the Greek gods are literally real in it, which is weird mm -hmm. considering all the Christian allegory stuff. Um, well, that was a thing in the Renaissance. This would be so. This would be like Elizabeth, still Elizabethan era, right? You said before um, Shakespeare, but it, it's like, um, yeah, it's in the. Uh, in fact, the whole book is a giant love letter to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Gloriana, right. the fairy queen, is Elizabeth. It's very obvious. 
So that's that's basically like the tail end of the Renaissance period, and it is significant. So and which is makes sense because England kind of got the Renaissance a bit later than the rest of Europe, um, because the, one of the big things with the Renaissance in in Italy was that they kind of partly it was a nationalistic thing because they're you know the ancient Roman gods and everything, and this was Italy, but uh, and they were kind of proud of their, their their it was it was celebrating their heritage in that sense, but it was also uh, the rebirth of humanism. It was sort of predating the Enlightenment, the idea that uh, you know you we can celebrate like. Um, sort of ideals beyond just obey, obedience to the church and everything like that. And it, you know, it did sometimes cause trouble, uh, but there was, you know, it, it became this idea of, well, we're more enlightened than that. We're not going to, we're not going to, the Inquisition isn't going to hang around and burn you. Uh, so we can sort of start to embrace what was g- godly and, and great in the old myths as well and kind of fold them in. Like Dante has a whole bit where, um, he talks about some of the great Greek heroes uh, are in heaven because God retroactively made them Christian by his own grace, essentially. Uh, I think they're in limbo, which is like the lowest Nope, nope, part. nope. He oh. has, he actually has Achilles, uh, a couple of the, like the really big hero. Uh, obviously not, you know, the, 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 like not the average Greek, but like the really famous ones. It's kind of like, I couldn't bear to put Achilles in, even in limb, even in the nice hell. Okay. So, so he has them, he has a thing where he says, by grace of God, they became Christians retroactively. He actually says that, if I recall correctly. And um, that that's a thing. Like, so that's, and then, of course, all the Renaissance painters were always painting Greek and Roman uh, statue, uh, you know, building statues and, and, and painting them and, and so on, and even in churches. So it was, it was kind of a, there was seen as a, as sort of a, I guess, a forerunner to Christianity. And it actually does tie in with, uh, uh, King Arthur, because King Arthur was outright pagan mythology that got Christianized. Uh, so that was kind of the, that was where the movement was in Europe at that time. Uh, so it does make a certain amount of sense that, like, yeah, the, the writers of that era liked to sort of they they weren't afraid to weave in the pagan stuff. They weren't, you know, the the sort of well, you have to be very religious and 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 stick to it was it was not necessarily the case at that particular point in history. Then you go a little bit further on and you get, as I say, the Puritans and there was a backlash. That was partly a backlash against that kind of stuff. Well, again, and you of know, course, the whole thing ago. is, like I said, just a giant love letter to Queen Elizabeth. Like right. Gloriana is supposed to be Elizabeth. Um, in mm. fact, in the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, going back to that, uh, Queen Elizabeth is actually replaced in the universe's fictional history with Gloriana. Right. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I did know that. And that, yeah, she's an allegory for for. Queen Elizabeth, which let's face it, a lot of Shakespeare is you know Hosannas yep. to Queen Elizabeth too. So it was a thing. I mean, a combination of she was the monarch, you got a pander to her, but also you know people genuinely genuinely liked her at the time. She was oh, seen. this yeah, it, fairy queen is very very obviously thirsty for Queen Elizabeth. Uh, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I suppose when it's she's one of the most powerful people in the world, it's a little less uh, crazy, but you know. Um, but, and hey, we got good, uh, writing out of it, but, um, yeah, so, so as you say, yeah, my understanding and you've read it again, and I haven't, but, um, it's got that sort of allegorical, um, and allegorical quest as well, which is, uh, yep. reflecting states of, of, yep. states of humanity and, you know, progress through either moral progress or the progress through life, uh, the, you know, and that was presumably inspired by uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which was the, the original or the one people point to of that, which is very, like, alleg- like as you say, very thinly allegorical to the point where it's barely an allegory because they just call, char- like, the main character's name Christian, and it's about yeah. the journey of what a Christian should do. And, you know, <laughs> everything is named after what it represents. It's not even hiding it at all. Um but um, so that's the reason we're bringing all this stuff up is that this is um, essentially what feeds into Fantastes. Um, and in fact, Fantastes is a character in the Fairy Queen, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Do you, do you remember? Uh, him? I don't remember, but it's very possible. There's a lot of stuff that happens in that. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's OK. No, he's <laughs> apparently he makes a very brief appearance. And again, he's an allegorical figure who represents the human imagination. Uh, and there is a there is a passage in here. I, I'm not going to dig it out, but there it's quotes the fairy queen, and it's like he's mentioned briefly as just a figure. Uh, and then later, uh, another writer, 
again wrote about Fantasties, the same character who was in the Fairy Queen, uh, and, and in both cases they talk about the old, um, the old as being an old man, but somehow young as well, and having a uh, like a young the the mind and and agility and spirit of youth. Um, basically, again, inspiring. You know, that's that's what the artist is. The imagine, uh, you know, the imaginative artist. And the imagination keeps us young, which is part of uh, that's feeding into sort of what this book is about too. Um, it is so. This book is is among other things. It's like an allegory of the imaginative journey and about how one. Um, I guess uh, what I'd say is it's 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 not just the journey of the artist, but it's the journey of discovering the importance of the imagination, I guess you might say. Again, it's... So MacDonald was very much a guy who wanted to uh, uh, justify the use of fantasy as a genre, as a, as a literature uh, at a, in his time. And not in, like, a really defensive way. It didn't... You don't... You know, I've, I've re I read some of his uh, intros and stuff as well, and his essays, and, you know, he never comes off as a guy who... Well, I, I mean, I suppose he's defend. He's he's apologize. He's an apologist for fantasy in the classical sense, which is means he tells you why it's important and he's defending it against criticism, real and imaginary. But it doesn't come off as like bitter, like how dare they say fantasy isn't important? It's not like that. It's him. It's and, not like uh, Marvel fans complaining about Martin Scorsese. <laughs> yes, it's not that. Um, and I mean, that does make sense because again, like he's you know they're close enough to sort of classic the classics of literature that um you uh you know you, nobody's gonna sneer at you know as you say fairy queen shakespeare uh, various other writers who were overtly fantastical right up to the point where the you know the quote realistic novel was actually a pretty new invention at this time um you know you, you wouldn't go back uh, now here's where i'm i'm not gonna I'm not going to be able to say, and it's something I should, uh, I should, uh, we should look into and get back to because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of showing my ignorance here. But uh, you know, you you don't go much further back than uh, maybe Thackeray or Jane Austen or Hawthorne and like the the, the late Bronte sisters. Bronte sisters. Those are all uh, so ranging between the early 19th and the late 18th centuries. Um, I don't know if there's any other quote realistic uh, authors uh, previous to that where the story is not in some way fantastic. There, there probably are, and I, you know, again, I apologize for my ignorance of the actual uh, literary evolution. But I mean, so we're we're probably less than a hundred years out from the quote realistic novel even being a thing. So it's it's not like he had he was on the back foot when he's defending realism and he even says in some of his um or when he's defending fantasy and he even says in some of his uh his uh his writings that like well the realistic novel is important too and real the, the you have to live in the real world but you have as i said in that opening that i quoted you have to be able to to dream sometimes um but it is interesting to just see like a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the debates and discussions that come around fantasy already taking shape right at that period um, and it's also worth noting that, um, like, there was the, the I, I think, not necessarily uh, in terms of realistic novelizations and realistic writing, but certainly, like, the Enlightenment had led to this um, classicist um, type of thought uh, in the late 19th century. And then we had, as I think we've discussed before, the Romantic uh, movement, which hit in the early 19th century, and that was... Byron, Shelley, Wordsworth, Coleridge, and um, uh, various others of that kind, and of course Frankenstein came out of that. So um, both, you know, fantasy and science fiction kind of came out of that movement, and it was and it was kind of intertwined with the the more Enlightenment movement all throughout the nineteenth century, back and forth, because they were always in conversation with each other and and responding to each other and bouncing back and forth. Uh, the German especially romantic movement there were of course a number of different countries had their own romantic movement but the german romantic movement was a was kind of the forerunner of what we would eventually call you know goth um and gothic in the sense of what eventually led to our idea of what classical horror is you know crumbling castles and creatures of the night and 
darkness and blood and to a certain extent, you know, getting into the gory and the, the horrific. Um, that all came out of, you know, largely out of German romanticism to one degree or another. We talked about um, the Gothic novel in the Castle of Otranto as well. That's that's a piece of the puzzle as well. Um, so fantasies is, and fantasies is getting into the Victorian uh, period where I think they were a little less, uh, they, they were they were trying to tame it a little. I don't know if you know the phrase uh, Baudelarization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do you know who Baudelaire was? Yeah, yeah. He um, he tried to clean up Shakespeare. Right. He was uh, apparently he, apparently it was like an attempt to preserve Shakespeare. Like like this is all that people will accept, so we'll at least give them a cleaned up version, sort of thing. Like I don't think you know it was a very um, you know upbeat, but also very you know clean cut, pure flicks kind of attitude. <laughs> in uh, the of course the, the, that's one of the things the Victorians were known for, you know, they were, uh, they, they were very moralistic and they, they wanted happy stories and they wanted, uh, they didn't want, uh, the shock and awe, which is of course, of course, most of the, a lot of the most famous stories we have from the Victorian eras are actually blood and guts and brutality and, and all kinds of horror. Uh, but, um, uh, that was because they were significant because they were pushing back against the moralism of the day, sort of, Oh, boys and girls, let's listen to this story. You know, that kind of, I mean, fancier verbiage, but, you know, <laughs> that kind of attitude sort of prevails throughout the Victorian era. Um, and that does show up in this book to a certain extent. I'm not trying to, to bash it in that regard, but it does have, you know, it does have that general spirit of optimism, which is good, and, um, you know, moral instruction, and I guess preciousness is what you'd say. Um, speaking of moral instruction, it's time to stop for a word from our sponsor, so we'll be right back after this. Eliminate clutter and embrace the freedom of HyperX wireless gaming gear for PC and console. Power through all the great monthly PlayStation Plus games with the Cloud Stinger Core Wireless for PlayStation. Enjoy lightweight comfort with reliable wireless freedom so you won't miss plot points when you head to the fridge. High-quality HyperX wireless products can be found at most fine retailers, as well as online at Target, Best Buy, and Amazon. Or you can shop for them directly at HyperX.com and HP.com. When it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year, we'll be there for you. I'm Ryan, the line is always a dot to me. And I'm Mark, how are you doing? And we are a podcast of two friends watching Friends. Reliving every episode of the TV show Friends in all its glory, delving behind the scenes and discussing all our favourite moments. Join us as we get reacquainted with some old friends and hopefully make some new ones only on the HyperX Podcast Network. So let's talk about the book itself. Um... Again, it's yeah. It's, this has been a lot of background. I think it's necessary, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because it does. It's it's sh- like it it shows what we're trying to do in this podcast, which is to sort of show this progression uh, and how these different genres and different tropes evolved. Um, and so this is really, I think, a big step in the development of the modern fantasy genre, as opposed to like it's a bridge between sort of the classical fantasy and the modern fantasy. Um, earlier, uh, you were talking about. Um, well, we'll get, uh, sorry, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but just, uh, but just uh, talking about the the uh, the story itself, it's just about a guy named Anodos, uh, whose name appears to be Greek for uh, pathless or uh, or uh, directionless, uh, with apparently the implication of upwards as well. Uh, so it's all said right there. again. You've got the the Pilgrim's Progress type, uh, fairly straightforward uh, allegorical description. Um, and he uh, discovers by researching his father's, uh, he actually finds a desk that his father uh, left him, uh, which has notes in it. And he discovers that he's... Oh, it should also note his age. He's 21. Right. Um, which I yeah. feel is, is important. Like, he's a very young man. Yeah, yeah. He's he's just inherited, basically, his father's lands and, and house and everything. Um, so he's basically come of age just now. Um, and that is, yeah, as you say, that's significant. Um, and he, um, he's kind of, you know, caught up with business and, and the, the mundanities of life and, you know, is kind of at risk of being sucked into a life of materialism. Um, 
and uh, both wealth, but also just having to do business all the time because he's going to have an estate to manage, basically. And he finds this uh, his father's uh, papers, and and he actually <laughs> he discovers a fairy in his dad's affairs, literally a uh, 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 a little talking fairy, uh, who tells him that he is in fact part fairy. He has fairy blood in him and uh, sort of whisks him away to um, fairyland, as it's explicitly called, or fairy with an F-A-E-R-I-E, something that we've seen in, you know, fantasy writers since then, from Dunsany to um, Neil Gaiman. And um, I mean, the fairy queen is spelt that way. Right. Sure. Yeah, not just the spelling, though, but the the idea of fairy is something more than just... um, like little little people with wings, although they are that in this as well. Yeah, the idea that um, yeah, that's a Victorian idea of fairies as little little cherubic characters of wings who live in flowers and so on. Um, that's sort of a cutesifying of them that happened in that around this time period, because of course the Shakespearean uh, version, you know, for instance, they're kind of wild pagan figures that live in the woods, sort of thing. Um, still a little bit, you know. Uh, civilized as it were but they're they're you know they're they're the classic fairies are just sort of weird and creepy and and pagan they're obviously pagan uh, entities that kind of got a shoved into the christian mythos as we were discussing earlier um and the fairy the idea of fairy as a like a land and it's like the world where or the land where fairy tales happen essentially so it's like you know cinderella and and Little Red Riding Hood and and Jack and the Beanstalk, they happened in a world that isn't quite our own, even though it's sometimes explicitly said to be, you know, England or whatever. But it's 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 over the next hill, and it's like a weird little parallel reality. And and uh, even if the characters aren't don't aren't born there, then they you know they set out into the woods and immediately, as Stephen Sondheim would have it, and of course Sondheim was referencing that as in into the woods as well uh you know then you're in the the land of fairy there's a there's a term in germany in german which uh got referenced in a lot of the supplemental material i read about this called uh, which is marchen um which is apparently like it's te- generally translated as fairy tale but it's a little closer to this concept that i just described like this otherworldly setting where fantasy takes place which we of course developed in the 20th century via tolkien into secondary world fantasy but it's sort of there lurking as an idea uh throughout a lot of uh throughout a lot of 19th um, century stories i mean uh earlier like the fairy queen is set in fairyland uh, explicitly right um like a um and uh, gloriana is the queen of fairyland but it's like a metaphor for england but at the same time it's a lot more you know fairy tale like um you know the the in that there's like a specific capital and a and a history and it, it like goes through the the history of the um you know from when they were created by Prometheus you know they were like another creation of Prometheus right. um uh and throughout you know going through the list of kings throughout uh the ages um and uh, uh and, and other examples like Canterbury Tales as one called uh, Sir Topaz that involves a uh, three-headed giant who guards fairyland um and yeah so like it's a thing going back but um Mm -hmm. uh yeah it was getting like a resurgence in this era yeah in um in stardust uh by neil gaiman he actually talks about fairy literally uh consisting of every country that people believed it existed before they proved it didn't and they were all it's all there in fairy so it's essentially again it's the world of the imagination I was just going to say there's like equivalents in different countries like Russia. Russian mythology has like the uh, um, the thrice ten kingdom past the thrice nine lands, something like that. Like mm. a lot of their fairy tales start that way. Right. And it just sort of it's the equivalent of like, you know, a uh, yeah. long time ago in a land far away. Sort right. Of East of the sun and west of the moon yeah. is another phrase in a lot of northern uh, European fairy tales as well. Yeah, it's 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 a thing. Uh, yeah, it's 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 just sort of the other place, which again, we've kind of locked down a little more firmly in the 20th century as, as this other world. But it, yeah, it, it's been something that, that it, at, at this time of history and then when George McDonald was writing, it was, you know, the go-to was fairyland. Um, yeah. So, oh, I, I should mention like in, um, in the fairy queen, it's an actual like land on earth. It's like, uh, 
it can be traveled to. Like, um, it's not like a dimension hopping thing, like uh, mm-hmm. like it is in this book, basically. Like, they don't right. use those words, but like it's um, there. It's like layered on top of our reality, sort of thing. Um, sure, but you, you you always have to sort of cross a barrier, kind of, to go to Fairyland. Like it's um, like you know, you go across uh, a brook, even if it's you know through a wall or across a brook or into the into the woods being the most common one obviously yeah um, yeah i'm just saying in the fairy queen specifically it's like a continent mm-hmm. uh, on earth um uh obviously it varies greatly depending on <laughs> the specific version but uh yeah um yeah so it because uh, a lot of like pagan ideas like the fairies didn't live in like another dimension they just lived like in hills nearby sort of thing right um Right. Uh, the the idea of the veil is a very uh, like veil between worlds. You know, mm-hmm. that's usually about you know ghosts and stuff. But it's uh, it also applies to fairyland. But it's a very Victorian idea. Mm. Um, it didn't really exist prior to that. Like the idea of like um like there there's times of the year where like the veil is thinner. Or sure. Or like that's that's not actually that old. Really. As a concept, yeah, I would have. It largely came out of spiritualism and stuff. It you oh, don't really okay. see that in actual mythology. Oh, okay. Much. Well, yeah, it's it, yeah because in all the old folklore, usually it's like a young boy sets out for home and immediately he's in crazy fantasy land. But it's the act of leaving home and walking down the road on an adventure that immediately takes you into again with quote marks fa- fairyland, even though it's not explicitly named as fairyland you're in a fairy tale suddenly and it's you know when you're at home in the cottage and you're a poor peasant you know and whatever you're buying magic beans or whatever's happening but then as soon as you leave the cottage that's it turns into a a fairy tale and you're you're in fairyland that's kind of the 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 basic idea that he's working from here um like in you know in uh allegory in general not not explicitly but um um so he, yeah, he. It, it, what we see in this story is, and you know, it's a series of incidents. Uh, you know, there's, you know, it's not really a plot like a co. It's not really a coherent plot. It's just he has this encounter and he has this adventure, like Pilgrim's Progress, like I imagine the Fairy Queen. Yeah. Um, but the big thing is that he's being. Um, a couple of big things are happening. He keeps. He's being pursued by uh, the ash and the alder, which are the trees. Uh, but they have personas that are hostile to him. The Alder being um, like an ogre, an evil creature that wants to destroy him, and the Ash being uh, a woman uh, who's a, but a sinister woman, uh, who's which is actually a recurring theme throughout the story. He keeps running into women who are beautiful and beguile him, and then try to to hurt him. And the Ash is usually trying to lead him towards the Alder. Um, but the beech tree is good. The beech tree is a dryad, as it were, that um, looks after. It's not. She's not called that, but that's the basic uh, idea. The idea that trees have a human persona. Um, the beech tree's in love with her, so beech trees look after him a bit. So that that's happening early in the story. The various types of trees are are uh, for or against him, and eventually the ash tree leads him into a uh, into into her home uh, without him knowing it's her. And uh, he's kind of, again, he's kind of lured on ex- pretty much <laughs> without being explicit about it. It's pretty much because he's horny, um, but um, which happens again throughout the book. Um, but uh, then... And she has a, a... Is this the part where she has a hollow back? Because she's like a fake... Yeah, yeah. It's... Um, and that's actually from uh, the uh, uh, Skogsra. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Swedish uh, folklore. It's like... A... A forest nymph that has um, a, a hollow back, and that's the tell. Oh, like they okay. look like a beautiful woman from the front, and they're like a hollowed-out tree from the back. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think somebody mentioned that in the supplementary, uh, like the introductions uh, things, that that's where he got it from, or one of the reviews of the book mentioned it. Um, and that's and it's also when he meets like the the thing she does to him is that she gives him a. Uh, a, sh- a shadow, which he already had, of course, but his an- his shadow becomes animated and uh, malevolent and starts kind of dogging him. Although it doesn't it doesn't really do anything explicitly bad. It just kind of 
becomes a spiritual drain on him, which again is very allegorical. But the idea is that uh, up till now he was really kind of in, even despite being chased by monsters, he was kind of enjoying his time in uh, in Fairyland. But now it's he 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 pretty much explicitly says the the shadow is kind of draining his his the the joy out of life and making it all seem very bland and normal and mundane and even though he's in fairyland and like it it he you know he starts thinking the worst of everything he sees um basically a metaphor for depression even though that probably isn't how mcdonald would have phrased it but that that's uh that's definitely what we what we see it, it's not just that but it's also the attitude of like what life becomes if you don't have any room for anything fantastical or imaginary in your life you, you kind of become cynical and even amoral um at, which is then shown in a, in a little incident where he meets a girl uh, uh a, a young girl and he uh he's who's sort of on the cusp of womanhood and it's a bit uh there's a there's definitely some uncomfortable allegorical stuff there who has a little glowing globe that she carries with her and he tries to take it from her and it shatters um and that he he explicitly says again that was because he was under the influence of his shadow uh, that that you know made him think that was what he needed to do. Again, it's a little vague, uh, but you can see the sort of the 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 dots he's connecting there. It's kind of like if he's lost any, he's he's been dragged in by the material world and he's not able to be uh, respectful or reverent and he does something kind of bad. Um, I was thinking of. Um... We've had a few stories where a character is dogged by his his own shadow, uh, like uh, um, the Earth's the first Earthsea story, uh, right? Earthsea, yeah. Where yeah. he's yeah. He, he goes up against his shadow, and the the thing was to sort of embrace his dark side, like accept it as part of him. Yeah. Um, we also had um, Jurgen has Jurgen. the yeah, yeah, running Jurgen. thing with his shadow, and right. you know uh, his shadow's uh, keeping tabs on him in that. Yeah. And he. he uh, when he turns off the light to have sex, you know, nothing can be proven that happened because the shadow can't see it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what I was thinking. You read that and you're like, well, that actually became, again, that's one of many ways in which this clearly influenced a lot of later uh, fantasy books. Uh, but I mean, it's also just a very, like, it's, it's a hard metaphor to avoid, obviously your shadow being your, your, uh, your it's, it's, it's in Jungian psychology as well. They talk about yeah. the shadow as your, uh, your your negative self your i guess your your bad thoughts or your tendencies towards self-destruction and so on um so yeah it's it's it, but again it's hard it, it's kind of the thing like i don't want to credit it to george mcdonald because i'm sure that i'm sure it's been done before him and i'm sure that if he didn't come up with it somebody else would have you know that kind of thing um but yeah it's yeah it's, but it's these are all sort of ideas floating around that we're sort of all tapping into i guess young in unconscious Whatever, it's nonsense. Right. Uh, but and, um, um, yeah. Oh, uh, I also just wanted, uh, just before we change topics, wanted to talk about the uh, um, ways that fairies work. Because you were talking about the trees having, you know, a, a spirit like dryads in Greek mythology. Um, I, I like the bit with the uh, the fairies that live in flowers, who are usually who are described as the the children fairies, and uh, when the fairies. Uh, seemed to leave the flowers. The flowers die, and they were um, there was some confusion at first over whether like the fairies died and then the flowers died, or like if they were connected. But it seems that the flowers were just sort of the fairies' homes, and they when they left for a long period, the flower died, but they could the fairies could put themselves somewhere else and make a new home, and the flower would grow there. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, that was that was definitely like he's he's talking about there. He's he's reflecting how people thought of fairies at that time as being like, you know, they, they inhabit the flowers. And yeah, like you said, they've got the kind of dryad aspect where they're, they're tied specifically to plants yeah, and flowers. But I like the idea that the flower is like the, the clothing that the fairy puts on or the home that they, they dwell in. It, yeah. It's an interesting concept. Like they're, they're explicitly tied to it, but the fairy is more important, like more important than the flower. Like the flower comes from the fairy sort of thing. Right. And, um, yeah, so um, uh, the other uh, thing that happens, he keeps meeting uh, a knight. Uh, he runs into him a few times throughout the, the stories. Um, and at first he just kind of, he's, he's like rusty and tarnished. Uh, and he his sort of, his armor gets less tarnished as he meets him throughout the story. Um, 
by the end of the story, almost he's um, he's uh, basically uh, decided to become the uh, like his squire, and the the knight has like has become like this cl- gleaming figure of of heroism, um, and uh, like all the rest has been stroked away. And he says it's because um, like the every time there's a blow from a, uh, a an opponent, the rust gets scraped away. And so it's, you know, he's, he's had all the rust scraped off by all the battles he's been in, essentially, which, you know, the metaphor there is pretty, pretty obvious. Um, and, um, oh, it should be noted the knight is uh, Sir Percival, uh, or Percival from uh, the Arthurian stories. Right, right. Um, yeah. And there's actually... in, in some cases is the one who finds the grail. I believe he's the mm-hmm. earliest one to be depicted finding the grail, though he's got superseded by Galahad in later right. versions. Yeah, Galahad kind of, um, yeah, Percival's sort of the more interesting version, I think, and like, for instance, Wagner's opera Parsifal is about him. Um, Galahad was kind of created later because they felt like they needed this absolutely perfect knight who could do it. Uh, whereas yeah, Percival's, he's Sir Mary Sue. Yeah, Percival was, like, well, yeah, he's Lancelot's son because Lancelot was the one who was supposed to find the Grail and fails, and that's a big part of the story because he's he's impure. And Percival's, like, a fool, and that was the point. He was, a, like, the foolish guy nobody took seriously as the one who finds the Grail. But apparently neither of those were good enough. You needed a model for medieval knighthood, so they had Galahad, who's perfectly Christ-like, and he's perfectly, you know, ideal as, as the, the finder of the Grail. Uh, and in fact, and there's a lot of, in this book, Fantasties, there's a lot of um, poetry, because uh, George MacDonald was a poet as well, um, and he writes a whole, uh, he, he gives a whole uh, ballad of uh, Sir Eglavale, who is apparently the brother of Percival, although I've, I, I'd never heard of him before this. Um, there's a lot of knights, and who a lot of the main knights of the, the round table had brothers and so on. Um, but yeah, he's... Um, uh, he sings a large, uh, like a, uh, uh, he, he, he does a whole uh, ballad at one point about uh, Sir Aglovale. Uh And he does it while he's actually, then he, he meets some brothers. This is before he meets the knight for the final time. But he hangs out with some brother, a pair of brothers who are off to kill giants. And they basically say, you know, oh yeah, uh, you're, you're the one who's supposed to come with us, the third. He, before that, he'd met a uh, matriarchal woman in the, in, the, in the woods who was very kind to him and who's kind of a mother figure. Um, and it seems to be about sort of, I, I think that part was about kind of like understanding the value of parents and what they did to help you grow up. I think that was actually the meaning of that part, uh, because there's another, there's another matriarchal figure early on when he kind of finds his way into the woods and there's a woman tending the hearth and keeping the monsters, literally keeping the, the, the monsters of the trees at bay. Um, and that's kind of a mother figure. And then he ventures out from that and then he comes back to this other, much more kind and compassionate and he's you know it's it's, she's so kind to him he kind of cries and and weeps but um and i think that's what they're saying it's sort of coming back in adulthood and really appreciating your parents if what they did for you if they were if they were nice parents which they weren't always um but um and then she kind of directs him towards these two and they say oh yeah we met this the woman and she said you should be the third knight who should help us defeat these giants which they do except the other two die fighting the giants. Uh, and, and he then gets, he gets um, survivorship guilt. Like, yeah. Yeah. Survivor's guilt, that's the phrase, yeah. Where he feels like, they died, and they were better than me, and, like, why am I here? Like, why do I deserve to live when they died, sort of thing. Right. Although he's also alternately talking about how amazing he feels, and how he's like, well, I'm a virtual knight of the round table, I just defeated a giant, which is to be fair, a pretty big accomplishment, but he's also like, it makes him feel really great about himself for a bit. But as you say, yeah, he's then also guilty that he survived and these two much more noble types uh, died. So then he meets the knight for the final time and he basically becomes his squire. He goes into services and he understands that's the, uh, the importance of what they're supposed to do. Uh, and then they head out to a, a town where there's basically an evil cult um, that's kidnapping kids and throwing them down a hole, uh, where there's some kind of monster. And, um, there's a couple, there's a couple of small incidents before that, but that's the, uh, that's kind of the climax of the story. Um, and he realizes that, you know, these, these, this, this religion, this, these solemn 
priest-like figures are sacrificing youth to a monster that lives in the hole. He sort of charges into the ceremony. It's very very 70s uh, horror movie. Uh, he like he he finds he grabs one of their robes uh, and he and the knight doesn't suspect anything because the knight is so pure and holy he doesn't think there could be anything wrong with the ceremony they're performing uh, and he doesn't see that they're you know they're sacrificing them by putting them down the hole and there's a monster down there so uh, Anodos like he's so good that he sees the good in others and can't imagine that they're doing something so wicked right and uh, yeah so Anodos basically uh, sneaks in gets a ro- one of the robes sneaks into the ceremony goes charging up to rescue the girl they're about to throw into the hole and goes, I can't remember if he jumps in the hole himself or if the monster pops out of the hole and, and kills him. But one way or another, the monster kills him, uh, despite the fact that he's the narrator of the story. Um, at which point there's now, there's like a funeral and he talks about being at his own funeral and being prepared to be buried and all this stuff. And um, he, um, he, uh, he's, uh, he's dead for a chapter. Um, and, you know, everyone, all the good characters he met kind of mourn over him and talk about how, how wonderful he was. And then he wakes up in the real world. So it's like his time in Fairyland ends with him dying and being reborn into the real world. Um, but of course, it's a journey of maturity and growing up. And, you know, McDonald's kind of saying, you know, that's, uh, that's part of life. You, 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 you re- reconcile with your imaginative potential it's not i grow up and i stop being a child and stop thinking of imagination and wonder i i just you know use it to understand morality basically and uh like that's how i that's how i gain my uh my fullness as a person is because i i've 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 wrestled with my imagination and i've 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 learned lessons through it uh which is kind of neat i think it's also worth noting uh, as we mentioned uh mcdonald was um drummed out of the clergy for heretical beliefs uh and that's probably reflected in the climax here like he was it's probably him very uh well not even that not even that um subtly but in a way that wouldn't get him into trouble criticizing the church uh you'd uh, that's not crazy of me to think that right no no that makes sense yeah perfectly yeah um i was just thinking the um the sort of uh, theme that it comes up with at the end, the, the idea of the, um, reconciling your um, um, the, your uh, romantic nature and your uh, mundane nature um, is reflected in uh, Master Flea, which we did by E.T.A. Hoffman, although much less um, uh, coherently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, McDonald was apparently a huge fan of E.T.A. Hoffman. There's a book he wrote called The Golden Pot, which we didn't read, but apparently that was actually... Um, he was basically contemporary with E.T.A. Hoffman, and that was a, a big uh, a little bit after, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, but but to the point where they were alive at the same time, kind of thing. Yeah, and and um, yeah, and and that was another. So again, the German Hoffman being German, that that kind of fed into uh, the German Romanticism thing. Um, yeah, we also didn't talk about the Marble Lady, which is a important recurring thing. Uh, uh, he's he's saves a woman who's been sort of uh, encased in stone and she keeps popping up and uh, she becomes his sort of the ideal beauty that he looks to. But then he finds out that she's actually um, in love with the knight, uh, Sir Percival. So, um, and eventually just comes to accept that uh, uh, this is the way it is. It's interesting that he, you know, the main character doesn't get the girl sort of thing. Yeah. That's his, that's his moral, um, you know, Reckoning, like he, he's he's a bit of a girl chaser for the first little bit, and then he realizes this girl's in love with. He he literally says like, if there's a better man than me out there, uh, then you deserve him and you should have him, and it is the knight, right? Um, yeah. So it's it's about he learns self selflessness and he learns not all relationships are right for me, and he does meet he actually does meet another woman later on, although they never end up together. Uh, he calls <laughs> it's it's a bit confusing and hard to describe but he 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 basically uh goes into a uh a palace where the statues are coming to life and he sings a song which summons this woman uh from a statue but also from the air um and she comes to life in front of him and then she sort of runs off and he pursues her uh and he never catches up with her she never uh but it leads him into the it leads him further into fairyland and into his moral development but that's that's his sort of 
that's his big uh, romantic moment or his big his big love love affair uh, in the uh, in the story is that this this woman who who uh, who leads him onward and it's obviously again allegorical for chasing beauty that you never actually are going to catch. Yeah. Oh, you were talking about the the statues thing. He was. I like I like that part because there's statues that he sure are dancing around when he's not looking. Mm. Um. So he can't. But when he walks into the room, they they freeze instantly because they expect because he um they sort of sense that he's looking for them. So he realizes that he just has to wander around and and sort of forget that they're there and and walk into random rooms and stuff and they won't you know they they won't. Uh, realize in in time that uh, i don't know it's sort of like um i'm not sure it ju- it just struck me as amusing yeah it's you know there's a lo- again there's there's a like um uh like the the thing in the hitchhiker's guidebooks where uh to to fly you have to fall and then forget your fallings right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly well that's yeah that's and and you that's can't another consciously go looking for them you have to right. you have to accidentally stumble upon them so you came up hmm. with a way where he intentionally accidentally stumbled upon them. Right, right. Which is, again, another metaphor for wrestling with your subconscious and your imagination and being a writer. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't directly transcribe your subconscious. You have to find a way to sort of evoke it into life through through a rational process. So, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I wanted to talk a bit about the princess and the goblin. I, I know we're, we're running a bit longer than we were uh-huh. expecting. Yeah. Uh, that's... Um, McDonald's other sort of major work, which I had read uh, years ago, um, and was uh, uh, it's a lot more of a conventional story than this. It was written for children, unlike this one, which is uh, a book for adults. Not that it's like you know pornographic or anything, but it's it's more uh, mature in its themes. Um, and the Princess and the Goblin. I mean, it's been a- adapted into like a faux Disney movie, so like it's you know. Um, it's a lot more uh, uh, conventional and, and kid-friendly, um, though it's got it's got a lot of fun elements. I liked uh, the depiction of goblins in it; seemed to have uh, inspired the goblins in The Hobbit, um, uh, and uh, yeah, some cool creature descriptions and uh, fun characters. Yeah, uh, recommend that one. I haven't read the sequel, but uh, uh, it's on my list. Um, this one was actually um, Fantasties. Um, this is uh, your episode that you've been uh, the primary on, Adam, but I wanted to read it too because it was on my list for uh, books set in Fairyland. I just hadn't gotten to it yet. Um, it's like it's considered like a major, uh, a major Fairyland uh, centric work, uh, and uh, like uh, so, like this was sort of on my radar, but uh, I hadn't read it. And uh, thanks for picking it as a topic. No problem. Yeah, as you say, and then yeah, when it the the way that it clearly influenced Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was very explicit about, as we said, um, being inspired by MacDonald, and and um, I don't know if Dunsany was explicitly inspired by him, but it's hard to believe he wasn't uh, a little bit uh, for some of his stuff. It's Dunsany's thing is a bit different, but it, you know, there's there's probably some influence there. Um, yeah, um, I, I can see similarities with. Uh, uh... Again, we talked about the uh, uh, King of Elfland's daughter. You can see some sort of parallels right. with that. Yeah, the King um, of Elfland's daughter is very, very similar to this in a lot of ways. It has yeah parallels. Yeah, yeah, uh, and Wikipedia lists a bunch of other authors who've been inspired by this book, uh, George MacDonald in particular, um, and that includes Neil Gaiman, and that's pretty obvious mm-hmm. uh, looking, uh, thinking about it. Yeah, the um, the train between this and. Uh, King of Elfland's Daughter and Neil Gaiman's stuff, especially Stardust, is very, um, very clear. Like you can't. Yeah. It's there's a very obvious. Like they're all kind of homaging each other. The one, the ones that came later are clearly homaging the, the earlier ones in different ways. So, yeah. Well, like the sun and Anodos, our story is ending, so it can continue. Uh, we've been humble wanderers in the lands beyond, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice. We were guided through the dark woods by the bold and slightly rusty night. Alex Ross, engineer and producer. The epic ballad now resonating in your ears was composed spontaneously by Jack Furick. Um, 
Just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time uh, by wandering off into a wondrous land of fantasy, uh, full of bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, and comics. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or NeverSleepsNetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me, or Spear Hafok A for Philip. Uh, so until next time, beware of the ash and the alder, and we'll see you once you're out of the woods. Mm-hmm.